Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 115 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. On today's episode, Kim J. shares her story that begins with a dysfunctional family in which there was verbal and physical abuse. With a family history rife with alcoholism, Kim's childhood solution to the domestic chaos was to run away from home multiple times, only to be found and returned to the maelstrom. When she finally found alcohol, the solutions to her problems were quickly expunged by a can of beer or a bottle of hard liquor. Toss in street drugs and the die was cast for a future of alcoholism and drug addiction. All aspects of Kim's life became ruled by the disease, and she considered herself an alcoholic from the very start. After a difficult time in high school and an alcohol-soaked college experience, she continued heavy drinking and dangerous relationships well into her 20s. With the tenacity of an active drug user, Kim managed to keep her various jobs and functioned well enough to support herself. But the disease eventually damaged all aspects of Kim's life. Finally, beaten down and ravaged by 28 years of emotional, physical, and spiritual damage of drug and alcohol abuse, Kim found the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Though it took a while for her to embrace the program, Kim finally allowed herself to be surrounded by fellow AA members who offered her friendship and support. The rest of the story is both inspiring and informative, and spoken from seven years of hard-won experience. I believe you will enjoy Kim's words of wisdom and invite you to get comfortable while you enjoy today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA sister, Kim J. My name's Kim and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Kim. Hi. So glad that you could join me this evening on AA Recovery Interviews, the podcast that AAs from around the world share their stories of experience, strength, and hope in a way that can be of service to others. Thanks so much for doing this. It's a pleasure. Now, you're in New York City? Yeah, I'm I'm not from New York. I'm from California. Uh-huh. From Los, from Los Angeles. Um, but I've been in New York about 18 years, and um, probably longer at this point, which I'm failing to come to terms with. Yeah. Closer to 20. But, um, but right now I live in Greenpoint. Greenpoint. Greenpoint in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I used to live on the East Coast, and my aunt lived on Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. This very many, many years ago, but I always thought Brooklyn was a really cool place. It's very cool, and it's been pretty interesting to live here, and it's gotten pretty fancy. So yeah. It, it's really nice where I live. Um, I, like, just recently won the housing lottery. Uh-huh. So I, like, got this nice new apartment um, that gives us a I guess. Just knowing right. how to do it or is the gifts of sobriety, not actually getting the place, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful place to live in, and the sobriety is outstanding. Kind of like anywhere where they have, it seems like anywhere where there's also like a really serious party scene, there seems to be the polar opposite of a really good, really good sobriety as well. Like LA has great sobriety, you know, anywhere you go. Yeah, and there's got to be some kind of counterbalance to it somewhere right. along the way. But unfortunately, I think sometimes that we in Alcoholics Anonymous are the 
very, very small minority of the entire population. But it's great when a city like New York, or, I mean, Houston has 2,200 meetings a week. So you never have a, an excuse for not going to a meeting when, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same way there too. Absolutely. I mean, there's, where I live in Greenpoint, I mean, one of the reasons I've also really wanted to stay is that there's so much good sobriety, like right at my fingertips, like my home group, like, like I, like I said, I just moved, but there used to be before the pandemic, there was a meeting space like at, on the block behind where I lived. So I could go to a meeting every day and it was a good meeting. There's a ton of meetings to go to here in Brooklyn and in the city. But then we also have Zoom now. So like you really don't have an excuse. <laughs> well, that's true. And Zoom for a lot of people was the only thing to do during the, the pandemic. And some people just refuse to do it, which when Zoom's your only choice and you, you have no live meetings you can go to, uh, to me, Zoom was very important. How about to, to you? To me, for sure. You know, I, I have a, a love-hate relationship with Zoom for sure. It was interesting. You know, like I do feel that um, I'm lucky enough to have gotten sober before Zoom um, because to learn mm-hmm. to like have to break free of my um, wanting to isolate, you know, is definitely something oh, that yeah. I had to do just to get myself to a meeting. So it was, it was great to get sober before Zoom for me. But I will say it was funny, like right when the pandemic happened, I had this um, this service position. I was a chair at my home group. And, um, and mm-hmm. when the pandemic happened and everything shut down, my thought was, great, now I don't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I got out of that. So did that service commitment transfer over to Zoom? Yeah. And then there was a, an old timer in, in the rooms and who had 30 years at the time she's got a lot more now Uh and um 30 something years she called me up and she's like so there's this thing called zoom and we need to do it for a home group and i was i was just like in my head i thought oh shit but to her you know (laughs) who i love and respect i was like okay you know whatever you tell me to do i'm gonna do it so we ended up being the people who actually set up the meeting for zoom Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was great. But it was funny because like it was really the last thing I wanted to do. <laughs> like, so we ended up setting it up and it was, um, you know, it was really wonderful. Like, you know, 175 people came the first meeting. Like, yeah, I mean, it was it was like, so cool. And it was a lot of Zoom bombing at the time because, you know, there was just a ton of that going on and we didn't really know what to do. And we were kind of like all trying to figure it out. Uh, trying to figure out how to like use this new tool and yeah you know i have Mm -hmm. i have sponsees and i will say it was it was a really beautiful thing like for me during the pandemic to just you know let go and embrace it and there was a nice Mm -hmm. period of time where me and all my sponsees would like go to like two or three meetings a day together and it was so much fun and we had such a blast and we actually ended up kind of linking up with this women's meeting in LA on Zoom and we mm-hmm. all became friends and we were just super active and it really it felt like this thing that really saved everybody and kept us going you know it was like I personally maybe I'm giving myself too much responsibility or or whatever but I was like how am I going to get these women through the pandemic you know like how am I going to make sure that my babies who I adore are like okay and safe yeah and like it was lovely because like 
everybody embraced it. We all had such a blast and we all got like really mm. connected and, um, and it was a lot of fun. You know, we're alcoholics, so we overdid it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. I yeah. get it. A lot of people did. I did a meeting, a couple meetings every uh -huh. day, and I still have two meetings, one in L.A. and one out of London that I'm still uh -huh. a regular at almost three years later. Yeah. Very cool. And I was a greeter for the London meeting, uh -huh. and I was uh, you know, taking service positions for a meeting that takes place in Great Britain. So it was, it was very meaningful and also getting to meet people from other parts of the world. Everybody was always very nice and friendly. How long have you been sober? What's your sobriety date? It is January 4th of 2016. So I have seven years. I've cool. got seven years. And uh -huh. um, yeah, uh -huh. it's been a good trip. Just enough time to like not be new, but not enough time to be an old timer. Yeah. <laughs> well... You know, I think old-timers is uh, really? overrated, actually. Yeah, because, I mean, I was looking at it the other day, and I've got a, an app on my phone, and it tracked 12,878 12, days, which is, you know, it's 35 oh. years. And, you know, January 1st is my sobriety date of 1988. And uh, it's, it's amazing. I, I mean, if you stay... If you stay sober and live long enough, you, you get these large blocks of years. And then you, you turn around, you look back, you realize your grown children never saw you drink. Or, you know, the people around you, it means so much to all of them to, to have you sober and in their lives. It's just a wonderful thing. So seven years is amazing. I think seven years time. So January 4th, yeah, were you drinking sure. right up to the end or using right up to I the end? tried to get sober for a yeah. while and then i had been doing that thing where you know i kind of like test out meetings and you know hate mm -hmm. a bit which is funny to think back now because i love AA so much but but yeah i kept mm -hmm. kind of flopping in and out and um and then christmas came and i relapsed and you know i, I my anniversary january 1st because i had to go mm -hmm. back to work and but it was the first day i didn't drink just because i was at work was it a really raucous and wild New Year's Eve that year, or did you come away unscathed? I don't think I came away unscathed. It was it was the experience that I needed to have, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I spent New Year's alone, so I, I don't know if it was exciting. Um, you know, I was just binge drinking, you know. Like, yeah. I basically drank for about 10 days straight. Woke up, drank, went to bed, you know, or, or went to bed is a funny way to put it. Passed out is more accurate for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like I had had that experience, you know, it's classic. It's a lot of things that we talk about in the rooms. You know, I had that experience of thinking, you know, I had a, a little bit of sobriety time before the holidays, before Christmas. Um, I thought I could have a drink. I got off work and um, a, like a little early on Christmas Eve and went home and mm -hmm. bought some liquor and i proceeded to i was like oh i'll have a drink tomorrow on christmas is some sort of celebration and then i'll go about all the plans that i had laid out because like with my job i would get um between christmas and new year's off hmm. um so i wasn't actually working for 10 days and i thought you know like i'll just have a drink yeah. you know and that's that sneaky thought that we get or i certainly did and I had a drink and I kept drinking, you know, I, I, I don't remember what happened, to be honest. Maybe it was ruckus. 
I just don't even know. <laughs> yeah, and blacking out or losing one's memory over being drunk or stoned is a mixed blessing, you know, uh, in a lot of ways. Now, w- were you always a binge drinker? No, I wasn't always a binge drinker. Um, it's Gosh, what a good question because I never thought about that. I became a binge drinker for sure, mm-hmm. but I wasn't always one. No, I, I was a drug addict when I was young. You know, I did a lot of drugs. And um, mm-hmm. so I really thought that that was like my my problem. You know, I didn't think alcohol was a problem. And so when I was doing drugs, like you drink with that. Because like, who wants to do drugs without drinking? Oof, that sounds awful. But I didn't see the alcohol as a problem. And it really wasn't until I start, stopped using drugs. You know, not not because I was trying to necessarily. I just kind of like aged out of it I stopped going to like you know I got sober at 41 so like I stopped going to like clubs and stuff you know like Mm -hmm. so I just wasn't as much around the drugs that I was doing and I really like thought I had a handle on it but that's when I started to binge drink you know not right away but like slowly it just kind of took over I know when I was using drugs, I almost looked down my nose on people who were drinking alcoholically while I was using addictively. And I had my own opinions about them, but I always thought, you know, I'm a much cleaner drug addict than I am drunk because I was always very sloppy and slurry and everything else. And eventually I did them both together with a lot of gusto. But when you uh, were using and around people who were drinking, how did you compare your consumption with other people's drinking? I don't know if I really even thought I had a drinking problem. Yeah. You know, um, I will say it's funny that 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 seems to be a thing, you know, like um, as, as somebody who considers himself a drug addict, um, my experience is every drug addict I've ever known, if I may, has always like looked down their nose at every other thing, you know, like, oh, I only <laughs> I only smoke weed, you know, like I only right, do natural right. things, you know, I don't I only drink or I only or I drink wine. Like we have this real way of like validating our bullshit, you know, and yeah. kind of like living in denial. I don't know if I really thought of it that way when I was out there, but I did always kind of like make a mental note. I'm like, that's funny. Like you're sitting here doing cocaine with me, but you're talking shit about people who drink or do something else. And I'm like, Hmm. you know, I was definitely somebody who did anything that you put in front of me. So I don't know if I ever really looked down my nose at anybody else. I think I was more like, give me what you have. (laughs) Yeah. Why aren't you sharing? It's like your favorite, my favorite drug was always, what do you got? You know? Yeah. What do you uh, got? Now your use of, of drugs and drinking, looking back, when did all that start? And what was your home life like growing up? Did did Mm -hmm. it give you any would it have been predictive of somebody who would eventually become a drug addict and alcoholic? I mean, looking back, sure. Like, I don't know if I stood much of a chance, but, um, eh, gosh, you know, my parents were, they didn't really drink in the house, you know, mm-hmm. that my dad definitely would do that on his own and it was kind of hidden from us. And, um, 
my mom, you know, has her own struggles with other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up in a very volatile home, you know, um, there was a lot of yelling and, you know, hitting and, um, it was definitely dysfunctional, but you know, it's like nobody, both my dad and my mom both come from alcoholic fathers, like that they knew were alcoholics. Right. So like my dad's dad was a volatile alcoholic who, you know, had a big book on his mantle, you know, but would, but never really did AA. So they kind of, when I first came in, were a little weary. My parents did their best to like not really bring that into our home. So I didn't, I wasn't really aware of it until um, mm-hmm. later on. But now looking back, I'm like, oh my God, everybody was an addict, you know, of some sort. Like, you know, I grew up in a very dysfunctional home. You know, I was definitely in an alcoholic home that didn't actually have a lot of alcohol in it. You know, like you find out later on, or at least this is what I found out. Like, it doesn't matter if there's drinking or not necessarily. If you don't treat the disease of alcoholism, it's still very there and it still gets passed on. And the dysfunction goes on whether there's drinking or not. I mean, in my family, neither neither of my parents drank at all. But there was my dad was definitely a rageaholic. My mother was definitely emotionally vacant. And so those things add up to a miserable childhood and uh, something that you can't get away from. Now, do you have siblings? Yeah, I have a sister and half-brother. So when you were coming up, when you were growing up, how did you deal with what was going on in the house before you started drinking or using drugs? I mean, I think I've always tried to escape, you know, like I would run away from home a lot, you know? Really? Oh yeah, for sure. I was definitely, um... And this was out in California? This in California, yeah. Okay. Not as bad running away out there as it is in like New York City Yeah, it's right? you know... <laughs> You have to pick the summer to run away in the New York City. You can run away at any time in California. (laughs) That's for sure. Um, So you were running away. Wow. Yeah, I would run away all the time. And, um, you know, like it was, it's interesting. Like the the people around me, like the adults, the real adults around me, like not my mom and dad, were always worried about me. Like you could tell, like people tried to help, but Mm -hmm. maybe almost because there wasn't like, drinking or anything like nobody really knew what to do and like like there's no real um like how do you help a kid who's like I'm not coming around with a black eye my parents aren't necessarily drinking they're just you know highly dysfunctional people in my home life is awful you know Mm -hmm. so people always tried to help me so they'd let me stay or they'd like you know try to figure it out but I'd always just end up going back home. When you were running away, uh, did you have a plan ahead of time for where you would go or what you would, what you would do or what was your thinking? I think I would like, I like I my plan was I mean I was a kid so like my plan was to go spend the night at my friend's house and you know and and stay as long as I could until they kicked me out. <laughs> huh. What did your parents do about it? What did what was their response to you running away so much? You know, my mom would worry. I don't think my dad would say anything. You know, that was kind of the go-to stance of the household. You know, my my father wouldn't really say much of anything and my mom would freak out, you know. 
And um, that's kind of how it, everything was dealt with. Did your sister run away with you? or My sister didn't run away with me. She didn't run away at all. It's funny because my sister had a very different experience with my parents than I did. Is she older or younger? She's older. You know, I don't know if you like believe in the alcoholic family system or anything like that. But yeah, she would be the hero. And I was the, I think the scapegoat, you know, like typical youngest, typical oldest, you know. Or lost child. The lost child. Yeah. Yeah. She was like a cheerleader, you know, married with kids. Like she did everything, you know, quote unquote, right. And I was definitely like the black sheep who like, you know, did everything wrong. But I didn't, you know. Well, that's really tough, though. You know, uh, I had different roles in my family, but it's really tough when you when you realize that different people in the family are getting treated differently it, it, within that family dynamic. It's not like you can go somewhere else when you're a kid, although it sounds like, to me, you actually tried to go somewhere else, running away like you did. And Was it that your dad knew that you were going to come back and your mom was scared that you might not? I think my dad just, you know... I don't know if he knew that. I don't, he cared, Mm. but I don't think he like, he didn't, he knew enough not to get involved in my mom's wrath, you know? Like he was like, even though this is a bad situation, I'm just gonna like stay out of it because I don't want to deal with her, you know? That was typically what we got. Mm. It's just, yeah, it's not great. So tell me about your first experiences with, with drugs and alcohol. And most people start around age 13 or 14. How early did you start? Actually, about 14. Yeah, my first experience was going over to a girlfriend's house and spending the night and raiding her parents' liquor cabinet. You know, typical, typical kid stuff. But I remember, like, she didn't get drunk. You know, I got drunk. Mm-hmm. Like, I passed out. I threw up. You know, I ended up with my head in the toilet. She didn't, you know. She didn't have the same experience that I did. Did that make you not want to do it again? Absolutely not. That made me only want to do it more. I was like, this works great. Turns all the lights off. I love it. Give me some more, please. (laughs) I mean, I'm joking a little bit, but because I didn't start drinking regularly at that age. It was just my first experience. Um, But I did internalize the thought that this is a solution, you know? This is helping me get out of myself. Different effects of getting out of ourselves, uh, being accepted, Mm -hmm. being open, socially lubricating, all the other things that we can gain from that experience, especially being young. I was definitely a wild child, and um, part of that was just escapism, you know? Like, I never wanted to be home. You know, I always wanted to be out. So like, but then the thing is like, once you're out, like out of the house physically, I just want to be out more. I want to be out emotionally and spiritually. And like the only way that I knew how to do that wasn't by drinking. When did drugs enter the scene? Yeah, drugs entered the scene probably a little later. I think I got stoned for the first time at like 18, which is not that impressive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Most people do start younger. I didn't start till I was 18. Okay, good. 
good. Well, then there we go. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think I got stoned at like 18 for the first time. It was it was kind of adorable. Like I thought I wasn't like going to have an acid trip. So like I like had my friends like play music and I'm like, when is the like light show going to happen? And uh, of course, it didn't really look like that. But um, but I started using drugs at like 20. A lot of kids, once they start drinking, they find a group to associate with through middle school and high school. What was your experience with high school and drinking? Gosh, it's kind of a little painful because I don't, I mean, I think like I like really, like I was just an alcoholic right from the go, you know, like Mm -hmm. my experience with drinking is like even the friends that I, I made who I drank with, like I still was crazier than they were. Like, like, I would sleep with everybody's boyfriend, you know, I was definitely that girl. So, like, people would get mad at me, you know? Like, I didn't, I was acting out enough that mm-hmm. the friends that I had at that time were like, we don't want to be friends with you anymore. And, like, this is still in high school, you know? Like, <laughs> that's pretty bad. Um, I also had this really intense um Gosh, which I never really talk about. I have this really intense thing happened to me in high school that really just kind of threw everything off. So um, I don't know if I should talk about it, but yeah, like I had this experience in high school where um, I like, I don't know if this plays into my alcoholism. I would imagine it certainly didn't help, but I like, there was a Monday when high school, like Monday morning, the high school calls mm-hmm. my mom and dad and they're like, Kim can't come to school. And it was the girl who was, I guess I slept with her boyfriend. And I also dated this guy who was pretty crazy, had like teamed up and were mad at me enough that they went around the entire high school and like painted my name and phone number, spray painted it all over the high school to the point where the high school had to actually close and like call everybody and tell them not to come in that day. And so everybody knew I think I was a junior at this time so um it was really bad you know like my parents didn't know what to do and they weren't like the best parents to begin with and you know and I didn't have friends you know at this point because they were involved and um Mm -hmm. and I was really isolated you know like it was a it was a really horrible thing to go through, so I didn't have that like pack of crew to. I, I definitely got it later on, and it's funny because yeah. I'm incredibly social. But um, but in high school, not so much. I was kind of a loner. I was isolated. I can imagine having something like that happen when you're, you know, sixteen, seventeen yeah. years old. Uh, that's pretty traumatic to have to suffer that humiliation in front of virtually everybody. Yeah. Well, when you're in high school too, everybody is your high school community, you know? So for me, it felt like everybody, you know? So I kind of just stopped going, ran away again. So you ran away from high school at that point? Definitely, yeah. So what were the final couple of years like in high school? Did you did you did you finish it and complete it and what what was next? I finished it and I completed it, but I didn't complete it in school. I did homeschooling, you know? Like I, I didn't really go back. Like they kind of 
it was such a mess that they did provide me some leeway. I did graduate and I got to walk with everybody, but I think I, I it, gosh, it kind of blocked it a little bit too. So I might not be getting this completely straight, but, um, but yeah, my last couple of years, I wasn't really there. You know, I was, I wasn't really living with my parents. I had like gone to nanny for a family to get out of the house and I was just trying to escape. After high school um, was better. Um, I did create that crew of friends that were drinkers and drug users like me, and they were wonderful. <laughs> and I felt really connected to them, you know, so maybe that is what I needed. But, you know, I don't know if it was the best thing, but yeah. Did you continue on in school after you got out of high school? Did you go to college or? Yeah, I went to college. I don't know if I. Um, tried particularly hard even though that had happened earlier i feel like this is really when like you know the disease of alcoholism or whatever you want to call it kind of like started to um materialize in my life you know like i did get a a crew of friends who were heavy drinkers you know like just we had a place to go you know where everybody would um would drink together and we had the bartender cook friend who would hook us all up with alcohol you know, so like we got to drink relatively for free and as a group and, you know, we would hang out together every night and it was fun, I guess. I was dated at um, some kind of drug, drug dealer too. Like, you know, you learn, you learn to make friends with drug dealers and bartenders. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about your early 20s yeah. now uh, and you said you got sober at 41 so there's a period of let's say fifteen to twenty years in there. Uh, yeah. What was next in your life, and how was alcohol affecting you in the next several years of your life? I mean, really, for the next several years, I was doing more. Dr- well, I was drinking and using drugs, and it's so funny because, you know, often now, like I'll look back and people will like have references as for like that period of time. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, I just don't even remember, you know, like I wasn't in society, you know, I was hanging out with my friends doing drugs and drinking. Like that was Mm -hmm. my world for a really long period of time. Um, So as far as like pop culture around them, like, like I got nothing. (laughs) It's so weird. Um, (laughs) But but yeah, like I, I, I remember I, you know, for me, I always found a boyfriend, um, which is kind of embarrassing to admit, but I would find a guy who would, you know, be into what I was into and we would use together and I'd be friends with him and his friends. And, you know, that was my life until that relationship burnt out. And then I'd find another person, you know. So is that in lieu of actually finding work and and trying to do it on your own, or was that just all part of it? I think I definitely, gosh, I worked, but not very hard. And, you know, my personal opinion is that most people who are addicts are pretty tenacious. Um, so I was really always able to, like, get by and um 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't, I never worked on like a career, you know, but I was able to definitely support myself and, you know, function and still do what I wanted to do. You were what I always consider a functional alcoholic. That's, that's what I was. I, I was able to get the job done to the extent that I didn't get fired, right. but the drinking and the drug use always, always affected the outcome of everything I did. What was your experience? You know, I, I definitely um, was able to drink and, and use drugs as much as I wanted and, like, squeak by life. I was, I was a functioning alcoholic for sure. The unfortunate thing about that is that for me, and I would imagine other people feel this way too, it really helped me to be in denial about what, what my disease was. Because I actually mm-hmm. like had good jobs, you know? like I was successful, quote unquote. And like, you know, in my head, I was like, well, everything must be okay if I have this like, great job that I've landed, you know, and been able to like not get fired and, you know, stay and like maybe even get a promotion here or there, you know, it didn't always work out that way. Sometimes people were on to me and really got sick of me for sure. Um, because I would show up hungover or drunk or whatever. Um, oh my gosh. I used to like be so hungover at work. Like I, one of my job requirements was that wherever I worked, there had to be a couch so that I had a place to go take a nap in the middle mm-hmm. of the day. Like, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. A pre-rated job pre-rated 100%. Like, I would be pass like, out on. I'd be like looking around and be like, okay, this, this, this there looks like there's a place I can crash when I need to. You know, like, ay ay ay. Were you hiding it all from them or did they see through that and just didn't do anything? I think people saw, I think people just didn't do anything, you know? I think people really just don't know what to say, you know. Did they ever confront you on it? I mean, did, he, did anybody ever pull you aside and say, yeah. "Look, Kim, you're you've got a problem going on here." When about did that kind of thing start happening? I have a good story. So this is like a little bit later on. I'm I'm at a job. I've been there for a number of years, and you know, it's a it's a mm-hmm. good job, and um, mm-hmm. I make good money. I'm successful. I have a nice position. All that stuff. But my boss is my drinking partner, right? So every lunch we go and drink together. And, you know, I really saw his alcoholism. I didn't see mine. But one time I had gone to a company function and it was like a big company Mm -hmm. function where like all the domestic people came. My boss's boss and the owners and every single person that worked for the place were Mm. at this event. And I guess I got so drunk that I had to be mm-hmm. wheelchaired out of there and like taken home. And I didn't remember any of it oh, at all. No. And so the next day I show up and like my way of um, dealing with being hungover is, is when I was hungover, I'd be like extra cute the next day. Like I'd like spruce myself up a little bit extra and like wear a really nice outfit so nobody would notice. That's what I thought worked. And um, I'm at my job and my boss, who's my drinking buddy, pulls me aside and he's like he pulls me into a bar of course and he says um he calls me by my last name which is what he did and he he says hey you know I gotta tell you um we have a problem and then he tells me what happened the night before and he's like I don't know what to do he like he was worried about me 
You know, it was mm. it was humiliating. He was he was drinking with you. Yeah, he was drinking with me. He brought me to a bar to talk to me about this. <laughs> <laughs> right? He's like, come on, let's go to a bar to talk about your drinking problem. You know, I didn't get fired. Nothing happened. Hmm. I was humiliated, but I also didn't stop drinking. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Like we talk about like a spiritual, emotional bottom. It doesn't matter what happens. It's, it's like when you're you're ready, when it's enough for you, because like having 20 years under my belt or however long of being out there, like like this is just one instance, like I could keep going. Mm-hmm. All these things that just happened over and over and over again. And like none of it was enough to make me think that I even had a drinking problem. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. One of the things that we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, especially when we get to the fourth step, is we try to identify patterns. What kind of patterns were there to your drug and alcohol use through those years? And at what point did you first recognize or admit to yourself or even somebody else that you had a problem? I started admitting that I had a problem about a year before I quit drinking. I don't, admitting I had a problem might not even be an accurate way to describe it. I just knew I was miserable. You know, it's funny when I did my four step, I'm actually thinking more about my sex inventory. Really, the thing that was so painfully, blatantly clear was just this Mm -hmm. constant asking for being to be loved. You know, like I just wanted to be loved, you know, and like I went about asking, oh, it makes me want to cry. Like I went about asking for that love in like the most ridiculous unskillful way possible you know by having sex with people Mm -hmm. who obviously did not care about me you know by showing up to a job drunk you know by like all these things where it's just this what was clear to me is it's this like need at the core of my being of this little girl who was just like i just want somebody to take care of me Mm. like hurts to think about you know i'm sure yeah that's tough yeah the things that happen to us when we're small and they never stop reoccurring in our minds and somewhat the same way in my relationships but before I got sober was that I was looking to be fixed for problems that had been there since I was a child and that's a tall order for anybody whether they care about you or not and most most of the time those relationships they just didn't last 
But that sounds like a really kind of sad part of your life. Did that go on for the whole 20 years or, or I mean, were there points at which you felt like you were making some progress? Or No. I mean, I, I was like out there drinking and using for about 28 years. 13 to 41. Exactly. 28 years. So I think the whole time that's what I was asking for. You know, I was just that little girl who was coming from this dysfunctional family who just wanted somebody to take care of me, mm-hmm. you know? But what happens is, like, by the end of it, it's like I'm just having sex with some dude who I met in a bar, you know? And my, my like, soul, like, wants this human mm-hmm. to, like, rescue me. And, like, it's just so far from reality, you know? Like, it's just, like, oh, it's so sad to think about you know like it's such a brutal disease it really is especially when you start throwing the other addictions into it whether it's whether it's uh drugs or sex or love addictions or just straight old codependency yeah they all get into this uh toxic mix that doesn't have very many exits uh in, in what way did did you see yourself acting during that time? Was was there a period when you stepped back and kind of took an objective third-party look at your life? And what did that feel like? When I was still active? Yeah. I mean, I think when I stood back and took an objective look at my life before I got sober, really the only thing that I saw was that I was a victim and, like, why was I going through this and why was I being punished? You know, like, why Why did I, why was this happening to me, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I really was capable of seeing everything that had gone wrong and, like, mm-hmm. how painful it was and that, like, I, you know, needed help or whatever. But I really didn't understand or really think I was capable is maybe a nicer mm-hmm. way to think about it. I didn't really think I was capable of doing anything. You know, like I really Mm. thought it needed to be somebody else who would come and save me. You know, like I didn't think I was strong enough. I didn't think I was smart enough. I didn't think I was um, skilled enough to like fix that, even though I did understand that I was having a hard time, you know. While you were going through all of this, what kind of help did you seek out? Or at what point did you feel like maybe this was a problem that you needed help with? It's so funny, Howard. I feel like you've already heard my story because you're like asking me everything <laughs> in such beautiful succession. Um, yeah, I started seeing a therapist and that's actually how I ended up getting sober. I had seen a number of therapists, mm-hmm. but I started seeing this woman and I was in enough pain that I really wanted to do something about it. You know, like I was like, I did, wasn't looking at alcoholism at all. I was like, how do I fix my work mm. situation? How do I stay, get happy? How do I like fix my relationship stuff? Like, how can you help me to do all these things? You know, like, we, like how do we start that here? Mm-hmm. But it was the first time that like somebody was like, you know, do you drink? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. <laughs> So this was the final therapist you had was the one who finally convinced you to do something like go to AA. Yeah, she really did. Thank God for her. Reason I asked is because I had a number of years where I saw while I was still using and drinking, or I was seeing a PhD psychologist and we talked about everything except the elephant that right. was in the room and and 
you know, I, I might have gotten sober m- many years before I actually did if he had ever said anything to me about it, but he never brought it up at all. And I thought to myself, maybe he's just waiting for me to say something, <laughs> but the more he didn't bring it up, the more I thought it wasn't a problem. Yeah. Did you find that with earlier therapy? Yeah, I think I think that's like just the bad thing in general. You know, like if people don't want to say anything, it's not that they don't realize there's something wrong. It's an uncomfortable subject to broach. Yeah, but therapists are supposed to help with that kind of stuff, aren't they? They are supposed to help with that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I, I remember going to a therapist, gosh, back when I was in my 20s. And like, she had said that thing where, you know, this isn't really going to work unless you stop, you know, drinking and using drugs. And I never went back. So I don't know, it must be tough as a therapist because like, how do you tell people you got to stop but not let them go away too, maybe? A lot of practitioners will say, I won't see you until you're sober, which if they have been able to establish some kind of relationship to begin with, there's something to be lost if they don't stop but not enough of a relationship there to begin with, especially if the therapist has a hard and fast rule about only seeing people who are when they're sober. Well, I get it when you said you went stone to, to therapy. and Oh, yeah, totally. Like, I, I don't know, you know, like in AA, we talk about God, right? And um, so for me, what happened with the woman who helped him get sober, the therapist, I don't know if it was her or if it was me or if it was just God, but like Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, she said to me, you know, like maybe you should look at this. And I was able to hear it like other people did say that, you know, other therapists said it, you know, my, my solution was screw you for whatever reason at that moment, I happened to be ready, I guess, or at least ready enough. I think I was in enough pain. She was like that last house on the block, you know, that I was like, all right, I guess I'll, I'll try. How long had you been seeing her before you got sober? So she was probably, she's not my therapist anymore. I actually have a new therapist who was amazing. She got sick at the end, my, the one who helped me. But um, I probably saw her for somewhere between a year and, and eight months. And I think, I which isn't all that long. And I think mm-hmm. really pretty quickly into it she asked about my Mm -hmm. drinking and what she did is she didn't tell me to go to AA right away she just said you know maybe you should look at this and like try not to drink so much she's I don't think she was one of us and maybe that's the experience that I needed because she wasn't trying to get me to not drink she was just trying to get me to drink less Mm -hmm. and that was so painful and it did not work well. Mm. <laughs> it was definitely a number of months where I was drinking and then not drinking and then drinking and then not drinking, drinking and then relapsing, I guess. And um, mm-hmm. it was just a really, really horrible year. You know, it really, it, it beat the last whatever out of me that wanted to keep drinking, you know? Yeah. A lot of people I've interviewed, they will get to the point at which they're willing to look at it or actually try and stop once they've had a series of consequences or a series of events that really brings their problem to the surface. Did you experience that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, for sure. In, in what ways? Towards the end, like I was, I was in a relationship with somebody and um, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't even particularly like him. But, uh, you know, I don't think he particularly liked me. It was just convenient, I guess, uh, or something. Mm-hmm. I was working at a job that they didn't like me and I didn't like them. And it yeah. was uncomfortable. And then I, I got arrested, which is a funny story. Because I tried to end the relationship with the guy. So, like, that was the series of events, right? So, I'm deeply unhappy in all aspects of my life. Relationship, job, and Mm -hmm. and physically, you know, like, I had gained a bunch of weight from all the drinking. Like, I just felt Mm -hmm. not good, right? And then I go through this breakup with this this poor man. And, um, Mm -hmm. and I, like, I got, I I threw his stuff out the window. (laughs) I thought it was romantic. Um, You know, like you see it in movies. (laughs) It's not legal. (laughs) Yeah, and and I lived right down the street from a police precinct. So, you know, I wasn't really thinking straight. Um, So they came in and they arrested me. And, um, you know, that that arrest, you know, even though I've been arrested before, um, it it had been a while. And um, and it was a catalyst, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. That was right before I, I didn't drink for three weeks after that happened. I wasn't going to AA. I wasn't drinking. And I was just, you know, white knuckling it, I guess, is what they call it. Where it was incredibly painful three weeks of me, like, being too scared to drink. You know, like, I don't want to, I like, obviously this is, like, coming to a head. You know, like, this, like, I'm hitting a bottom. Mm-hmm. But I don't really know anything about AA. I don't really have any support around me. And I'm just miserably trying to get through this period of time. Because I feel like I can still do it on my own, you know? Yeah. And that that was right before the Christmas where I relapsed. Now I'm like, thank God that happened. So that precipitated your bottom. It did. Yeah, it did. You know, most bottoms are not pretty glorious. And mine's no exception. (laughs) Yeah, but we get there one way or the other, don't we? we? You know, it's uh, it's tough, and and certainly, the times I stopped using or drinking, there was something in the back of my head that always knew I'd start again. Oh, yeah. That's a tough way to to go, which is why whenever I run into people who say, "Oh, you've slipped," well, you can always come back to AA, and while that technically is true, uh, my belief, and it's it's been this way for many years, is that if I slip, I won't be back. You know, not only will I blow my sobriety, but I, but I will also have blown something that I'd worked a lot of years at just ceaselessly. So, yeah, I, I get that. So did you go to jail at all or were you behind bars for a period of time? I mean, I, I went to jail for like a weekend when I was in L.A. Um, before I moved to New York. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I can definitely correlate that to, to drinking and using but this time I didn't go to jail. I had been in a holding cell here at the precinct, um, not far from where I'm living. And they just kept me there for about eight hours and then they let me go. I think they like brought me to central booking and then let me go about one o'clock at night. But I remember those eight hours, I was just wailing, you know, and I kept, <laughs> it was so awful. I was definitely that drunk girl who people are like, shut up. I just cried and wailed and screamed and felt sorry for myself. And there was a, a woman police officer who I kept calling over and I'm like, but he cheated on me. Like, how can you do this? And like, mm-hmm. 
Nobody wanted to hear my nonsense. I was, de- I mean, I was, I was definitely still drunk, you know, um, from the night before. Like, it was super not cute, grim to think about. But at least I didn't get booked because I would have had to go to Rikers Island. And um, that's a blessing that that didn't happen. What did your spiritual life consist of or look like before you got sober? <sighs> My spiritual life. I mean, I don't know if I really had one. You know, like I went to Catholic school when I was a little girl. I like dabbled in Buddhism and, you know, um, I definitely had a period where I was more spiritual than others more of like a eastern philosophy spirituality but Mm -hmm. one of the biggest reasons i didn't want to come to aa is because i'm like i don't believe in god you know like Mm. it just seems like a bunch of i don't know it just didn't seem viable like i think i really just relied on myself and you know not very well So in, in 2016, shortly after the first of the year, yeah, you finally come into AA. Can you tell me what your first days and weeks and even months looked like when, while you were new in the program? What was your impression and, and what did you think oh, of AA early on? I hated it so much. Oh my goodness. My first meeting, I was like, dear God, what have I gotten myself into? And um, I think I drank after that though, but... I I sat in the back of the room. I cried. I didn't want to be there. I thought everybody was weird. But what what happened is, you know, I was in enough pain, you know, mm-hmm. that I just kind of like held on for dear life, you know? Like I just held on to that chair and I I went back and um I didn't go a ton at first. I started hearing little things that I'm like that feels right. Mhm. And um and I, I feel like I got lucky about two months into my sobriety. I went to my home group, which I didn't know was going to be my home group, but now it's been my home group for seven years. Mm-hmm. I went to this meeting in the neighborhood and um, I had kind of been going to it every weekend. And, you know, that's the way I looked at it. And I go in and I, I saw a girlfriend of mine who I knew from partying. You know, I, I, she was the ringleader, you know, <laughs> I never thought she had a drinking problem. You know, I don't even think I thought she had a drinking problem when I saw her at an AA meeting. I was like, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. But I was two months sober and in a ton of pain. I didn't know anybody. I was having such a hard time. It was hard to go. Thank God she just landed in my lap at that moment because I don't think I would have stayed. And um, it was too hard, mm. you know. I'm curious about that. I, I, I want to interject here just to get a better understanding because I'm a really big believer on it's important and incumbent upon any group to try and make the newcomer feel as comfortable and as welcome as possible. And you're yeah. talking about a two-month period where it sounds like you didn't feel that way. To what degree did the did the, the meeting and the people in the meeting reach out to you and what was your response? Oh, I mean, I just didn't like anybody, you know, and I think, you know, like I wasn't people did try to help. I wasn't returning phone calls. You know, I, I people even when they would text me, I'd be like, ugh, you know, like, I don't like you. You know, I thought everybody wanted to have sex with me. Like I thought, you know, the men and um, 
you know, and was kind of like going towards people who were maybe not the best people to talk to. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't surrounding myself with women because that's super scary. Really what I should say and what I is the truth is the minute the meeting was over, I left, you know, like nobody really had a chance to even like try to help me. You know, mm-hmm. I wasn't coming in early. I wasn't leaving, staying late. I got there a couple minutes after the meeting started and I would leave the second it was over. You know, like I was out the door. So maybe here and there somebody would like try to nab me and talk to me. I wasn't sharing. I wasn't raising my hand. I wasn't counting. Like I wasn't doing any of the things that would even let somebody have the chance to kind of intercept. I did the same thing. I mean, for the better part of 10 months. I didn't have a sponsor. I thought I could do the program by myself. And really the only two things I did right during that period of time, and before almost slipping, I came that close to going out, was I would go to the meeting and I didn't drink. It sounds to me Mm -hmm. like that was was the kind of uh, path that you were on for a couple months. For sure, you know, like I was still letting go, you know? Yeah. Like I Uh I didn't want it to be real. Even though, like, I didn't even tell you, like, at this point, I had already, like, had um, DTs. Like, I'd already had an experience that was physically scary, you know? So I was, like, I knew I couldn't drink anymore for Mm -hmm. now, but I didn't want AA to be a solution, you Hmm. know? I didn't want it to be something I would have to keep doing. I didn't want to really come to terms with the fact that this might mean I can't drink anymore. Like, I still was holding on. So you had a hard time getting to surrender, didn't you? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. You meet this woman. She became your sponsor at two months? She was my first sponsor, yeah. I'd known her from before, and and she recognized me, and I was super happy to see her. She qualified at the meeting, and then afterwards she said, Hey, Kim, how much time do you have? I gave her my day count, and she said, Why don't you call me tomorrow? And to be honest, that was the beginning for me. Nice. Because, yeah, she saved my life. I mean, she was a cool girl who I respected, and I could kind of let my guard down a little bit, and she was sincerely doing AA. I personally just needed somebody to open the door for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I was mm-hmm. just too scared to do it myself. So that's what she did. She, like, opened the door. She would drag me to meetings all over the place. She would... You know, she threw me a 90, um, 90 day party. She was so sweet. You know, she's still my friend. She doesn't live in the area anymore, but, um, but we're still good friends. And, um, yeah, one of the nicest things that she said to me not too long ago was, you know, it's beautiful, Kim, that like, you know, we've had so many friends come and go over these years because I've known her for, you know, almost 20 years. And she's like, but because we're both sober, we'll get to always be friends. And I was like, oh. I mean, what a great first sponsor. Like, she always said stuff like that to me. That's a tender sentiment, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. Wow. So how long did she sponsor you for? Not very long. Probably like two months. She moved to L.A. That's it? Oh, okay. <laughs> two months. And you know what? And it was so, it's so cool because, like, she just installed so much good stuff in me, like, right off mm-hmm. the bat. So did she insist that you get another sponsor right away when she split? She's like, yeah, you should get another sponsor right away. She she knew, like, when we started working together, she's like, I'm planning on moving to California. And, like, this was before Zoom. So, like, mm. she's like, you might need to get a new sponsor. I mean, I think she still would have sponsored me, but 
I also kind of didn't know what I was doing. So I wanted a sponsor right. here in New York. Um, I really thought my sponsor was supposed to be like my best friend who I hung out with all the time, um, which is not really what it is. So she stayed with me until I found somebody new and like, and then I got another sponsor and you know, my personal experience is that I, I got three sponsors in my first year. Um, hmm. Yeah, which is a little unusual, but I feel like it kind of rounded me out a little bit because mm-hmm. I had the, the one sponsor, my first one, who was like, you go to meetings, you talk to people, you're happy, mind, body, soul, you know, mm-hmm. like we show up, we do the right thing, we live in the light. Like she would see these super wonderful spiritual things to me. And then my next sponsor was this giant pregnant lady who was covered in tattoos and like just super pregnant. And like, she just loved me like, Oh my God. Like, and I needed it. I was a mess. She just loved me, loved me, loved me. You know, thank God for her. She really saved my life too. I remember I was on the phone with her one day and you know, when you're new, you usually call your sponsor and you kind of like, you got a lot of drama. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Part so, of the game. Yeah. Yeah. I was no exception. So yeah. it was the first time I could tell that my sponsor wasn't paying attention to me. And like, mm. I had that thought of like, you know, I can't believe this. She's not listening to me. And like, I didn't say that, but she says to me, she's like, Kim, um, I'm going to have to interrupt you and call you back. My water just broke. and I was like okay I'm an asshole you know like what a crazy like level to set you know like only in that moment was the first time ever that I like and I'm like you know rambling on about nonsense that I could tell she wasn't actually listening to me like such (laughs) a badass I love it that's great yeah, I've gotten, I don't know. I don't know if I've gotten lucky, but I've definitely embraced sponsorship. And I think it's just such a beautiful thing. How how long did it take you to get through the 12 steps? And, and did you start working them immediately or was there a delay? I started working with my first and my second. And then when the, the second lady had the baby, um, she I actually had to get another new sponsor. Totally mm-hmm. fine. Um, so I finished my steps with the third sponsor. And she was my sponsor for a number of years. Um, Mm -hmm. She moved as well. Um, That's just, you know, sometimes this happens. So anyways, when I actually was able to get through all the steps with my third sponsor, um, it probably took me a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I was like a classic sponsee where, um, you know, I I flew through the first three. And then when I got to four, I sat on it for about six months. (laughs) Because it was scary and painful. And, oh, yeah. You know. And then she um, she lit a fire under my butt, and, and I got to it. And probably took a, it took another year after that, I'd say, to, to finish. Maybe a little less. So we sponsor other people to keep ourselves sober and to, keep, right. and to teach them how to sponsor other people. How do you teach or how do you, what, what kind of uh, model do you set? for sponsorship with the women who come to you to be the, your sponsees? For me, I just do exactly really what my sponsor did. And it's always a trip when you like hear yourself saying all the things that somebody said to you to somebody else and you're like, oh, that's what they meant. 
Um, Now I get it. But the way that I sponsor is I should always be working a program that's, you know, above and beyond what I'm suggesting. You know, if I'm telling you to do it, I have to do it too, 100%. And, um, And for me, the way that I'm sponsoring right now, it's like, whatever you put into it, I'm going to match that. But if you're not putting anything into it, I'm going to match that as well. If you, if you're showing up, I'm going to show up too. Like if you ask me to be somewhere, I'm 100% going to be there. You know, like if you show me you're willing to do this, I will match that energy and we will get through this and it'll be super fun. But if you're going to not do that, um, then I pull back. To me, I've just found like, I've sponsored a, a ton of people by this by this point. Weirdly enough, I don't know. People like me to for sponsorship for some reason. I, I, it's a blessing for sure. Your experience is so so vital and so amazing, considering what you went through to get to where you are today. That that's appealing to a lot of people, Thank you. and it it helps them to know that you, whatever they're dealing with, you've probably dealt with something similar or worse. So. Right. Yeah, that's that's always good. So that's a big part of your service work, I guess, huh? Sponsoring other women. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even know you could sponsor more than one person. Um, <laughs> when I first came into the, I didn't really understand any of it. You know, um, I come from my my third sponsor. They had like this this group of people. It was her and her husband, and he had a bunch of sponsees, and she had a bunch of sponsees, and and like everybody was like a family it was so much fun and it was so beautiful and like they really instilled in all of us like we show up and we do this thing we talk to newcomers we stay after we help people like you like really live the life of a person in AA you know service so I still try to do that um to the best of my ability you know like I still have two service yeah. positions. I still go to a number of meetings. You know, I, I sponsor women. Like, that's like the big, I talk to newcomers. I call my sponsor, all this stuff, you know, like, that's like the baseline of what I do every day. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's it's indicative of a program well worked when you can have that kind of feeling about it. Sounds like you live from the middle you live in the middle of the program. I do try to stay in the middle of the program. You know, I would say um, I've definitely experienced testing what that would be. You know, um, I, I've done too much service. You know, like what I'm doing now works for me. And, um, and it just so happens to be exactly what my sponsor told me to do, which, you know, it's hilarious. Um, but like I've done the like, oh, do I really need to show up for this thing? Or, you know, this thing, AA, and then it feels horrible. And then I've done the thing where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do everything because I'm terrified. You know, I'm going to take every service position. I'm going to go to every meeting all day long. And, like, that also doesn't feel good, you know? Like, I think being a little bit more involved when you're new is the better way to go so you can build a foundation. But, um at some point, you know, like you find like, if anybody listens to this and they're like, oh, that sounds like a lot what this woman does. It's really not, you know, like it's what's comfortable for me. And it's 
it yeah. provides me an opportunity to like have this big full life outside of AA. Sure. And God has a tendency to put people in our lives at the time that we need them and they need us. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that too. We're going to wrap up here in just a couple minutes. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned earlier just briefly about your sense of spiritual awareness before you got to AA. Can you tell me what your awakening looked like and did you have one and, and what part does spirituality play in your program? Um, I think I have a very gentle spiritual program, you know, like I, I don't beat myself up with it. It's super gentle, but I did have a, an awakening, I guess you could call it. I had this experience where in early sobriety, um, I was going through a hard time at work, like I said, and like, mm -hmm. I remember one day, like I knew I had to go in and like talk to, um, you know, HR and my boss and like, there was like some drama mm -hmm. and like, I was so nervous, you know, like I was really anxious about it. And I remember standing in my kitchen and just having this moment where in my body, like right in my core, I was just like, oh, I'm going to be okay. Like, I'm going to be okay. Everything is okay. And like, I did feel some kind of like God presence. I don't know. I think it for me, it was more just really understanding like, like, everything's just going to work out. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through this. And, like, to be honest, that is 100% what my spirituality still looks like. Like, yeah. just being able to walk through my days every single day, even when they're bad, and understanding, like, that I'm just, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. That's, to me, spirituality, you know? What a lovely way to to work and live a program, to have that that sense of the spiritual underpinnings that is that are so important for us to stay grounded in the program and secure in sobriety and there to give it as well so well this has been just wonderful i i uh i never thought uh the time would go by so quickly but here it is and i want to thank you for doing the interview today, Kim, and your story is truly fascinating and important and inspiring. Uh, and I'm hoping that as people listen to it, they will be inspired along the way. I mean, I hope so too. I, this is without question the best thing that's ever happened to me, you know, like getting sober, it's, it's a path forward, you know, like it's actually not the end of your life. It's the beginning. And um, I'm so grateful that I've had that experience, you know, but it's not like, it's not just for me. Anybody can do it. <laughs> Anybody. It's available to all, all people. Again, many thanks for sitting down with me today. And I honor your, your program and your willingness and desire to help others in the program. And um, as I tell all my guests, I love you. I'm so glad that you were able to do this. Thanks, Howard. I love you, too. And it's been a complete honor and a pleasure. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Kim Jay, for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please take a minute to give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 
That will help others find it. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, and hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all General Service Office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.